Welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. Whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus or are exploring what faith in Him might look like, we are glad you're here. It is our prayer that by listening to this message, you may better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Please stand while I read from the ESV translation. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king would be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeroiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Rei, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened calf, cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all of his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. Well, if this is your first Sunday here with us, then this is a good Sunday to be here because uh, we're starting a new series. Uh, as you know, we recently made it through the book of Ephesians uh, over the last uh, number of months. And uh, now we are picking off where we left off. Picking up where we left off last time as we were going through the Old Testament, we'd been looking at the life of David. And now, as you can tell from this morning's reading, uh, David's life is coming to an end, and we're at a transition point uh, for the history of Israel and salvation history as well. And so we're going to consider that this morning. And like I mentioned two weeks ago, uh, we are, uh, I did mention that we were going to be coming back into the Old Testament, so I'm not sure if you had an opportunity to read through 1 Kings chapter 1, but I would encourage you to do so. Uh, we're not going to read the entire chapter each week. Sometimes we'll be taking a whole chapter, so next week we're going to be looking at chapter 2, so you can read that in advance of where we're going. Uh, but we have been looking, as I say, at the life of David, and this brings us uh, to the next in line, Solomon in the book of 1 Kings. Now, as you will have heard, David is not dead yet, but he will be soon. And so this series will take us right up to the Advent season. Uh, so this morning, I want to give us some background on the kingdom in the Old Testament. I want to give us some thoughts on kingship and why it's important that we should study books like this. We do have some very interesting stories in this book, and so I'm going to be telling some of these stories. So sermons like today, they're going to focus on providing some background, telling the story, and making some concluding thoughts that relate to each of us. And all of this is within a framework that is incredibly relevant, which really shouldn't surprise us 
as we read through the scriptures. You see, the reason these books were being read then is the same reason that we need to read and to understand them now. They were then and they are now incredibly relevant. Now, we aren't completely familiar, I would say, with this Old Testament view of kingship. You know, when we think of a king or a, a queen, we would think of like Queen Elizabeth or, or maybe King Charles, and these are constitutional kings and queens, meaning that they don't really hold a whole lot of power. They are almost just decorative. Well, like, don't tell them that, though, but their, their rule is not as supreme as what we are seeing here. But there are other places in the world where they still do have these kind of kings. Some countries will have kings that you must obey and submit to, places like Saudi Arabia, Swaziland, uh, even Monaco would have kings that might be a little bit more akin to what we are seeing here in the Old Testament. But here in our context, we obviously, for us, we have leaders, we have politicians, they hold a certain amount of sway, uh, but essentially they operate on the whims of the people. What do the people want is what they will do and bring forward, and that creates a lot of up upheaval. It creates a lot of power grabbing. Sometimes it creates instability, though we do live within a relatively stable situation. But ancient kingships could certainly be that way as well. They could be very unstable. But the terms were very defined, and a nation would rise or fall based on the leadership of who was in power at the time. What was going to happen? These people had real authority. And we have a nation that was on the brink of change. Significant things were about to be afoot here for Israel. David was pretty popular, but as we heard in our reading, he's failing. And so what will be next? Well, let me give you a little bit of background. So 1 Kings tells the story of 14 kings that ruled in Israel from about 960 to 850 BC. And it starts with, this book starts with Solomon, the greatest king of the book, of course. And it goes all the way to Ahab at the end, who is the worst. Now, why should we bother studying this? And I don't know, maybe you like history. Do we have any history fans here who just like studying history to know history? We have some history buffs here. We got a few of them spread around. Most of them are on this side. I'm sure there's some over there as well, though. History is a great thing to be able to learn and to be able to uh, learn from and to be able to remember and to be informed of. Now, I think that there are probably good reasons to study books like this beyond history as well. Now, one answer is that all of Scripture is God-breathed. So studying scripture is always going to have that benefit to us. 2 Timothy 3.16 really does make this clear. And the verse before that says that the sacred writings, they actually make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. The sacred writings make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. That means the kind of writings that we read this morning and that we're talking about. So we're able to read this book in order to become wise enough to trust in Jesus to be saved. And if nothing else, maybe you just like intriguing stories, because we have those here too. And I will tell you one today, but it's more than that. Because how does studying ancient kings make us wise in this way? Well, you see, the stories of the kings and first kings are part of a greater story of the king who was lifted up on the cross to be the savior of the world. 
It all points towards this. One of the vantage points to see this is the day of Jesus' execution, actually. And it was on that day that the Roman governor of Judea had an inscription placed on the cross that Jesus was that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. We see that in John 19, 19. And you know for him that that was a cruel joke to the Jewish people whom he despised. You know, this miserable victim, this is your king, the king of the Jews. For the Jewish priests, this inscription was an offensive lie to them, actually. But however, Pilate, he had unwittingly declared the truth. This frail and dying man on the cross, about to breathe his last, was indeed the king of the Jews. And if we see that inscription in the light of these scriptures that we are studying, it is breathtaking. He was and he is the promised king that all of these kings pointed towards. He is the hope of the world. And the story of these kings bear witness to me, as Jesus said. And so we must listen carefully. And today's theme is our world's theme. It's a theme of who is in control. And this is what they were wondering at this time as, as David was nearing the end of his life when he was very, very frail and very weak. Who is in control? Is God losing? Is God's kingdom really advancing? We can see even in our scripture, the few verses that we got into, that things weren't looking too stable. Does anyone care anymore? You know, many feel that Christianity is a thing of the past and that it's not for modern people. It had its time, and we're trying to forget about it. Is God's kingdom teetering on the verge of collapse? Does it look that way from certain vantage points? You know, many believe it does, and many are jumping ship. But they do this at great peril, which our text today will confirm. You know, we can look around us on a Sunday like this, and we see a healthy and a vibrant community of Christ followers. And we have the assurance that God's kingdom is indeed thriving, and it's moving forward. But not all have that experience. And this is one of the reasons why healthy churches are so important. Because together we encourage each other and we remind each other of the reality of the goodness of God's kingdom. A kingdom that will last. And here too we see that it's a reality at a time where it was being questioned. And so the central theme of our passage this morning is this. Is that God maintains His kingdom even in the most precarious of times. This is really the theme of 1 Kings chapter 1, that God maintains His kingdom even in the most precarious of times, even in times such as these. So let's take a look at where we're at in this story. The kingdom, as we said, it seemed to be failing. And we, we, we meet once again our great king, King David. But he's seen better days. He's old. In fact, he is so old that he is unable to even keep himself warm. They cover him with the best blankets in Israel, but all of that is to no avail. But there is another way to keep warm, and this is actually what you were taught to do if you are lost somewhere in the winter wilderness and you're suffering from hypothermia. Now, we were taught in school certain survival techniques for our prairie climate. You know, things you need to know if you don't want to die while living on the Canadian prairies. I'm not sure if they told you this, if you've come from another warm climate country, but they should have because they're survival techniques that keep us alive. The best way to stave off hypothermia is skin-on-skin -skin contact. That's better than dying, we were told. I remember hearing this as a kid and being mortified by this thought. 
I just remember thinking that I hoped I never found myself in that situation where in the wilderness with any of my buddies or family members. <laughs> this would be terrible. But it is a survival technique, and they utilize it with David here. This is, a, this is kind of a strange pas passage to read as we're reading through what's going on here. But rather than one of his buddies, they find the most beautiful woman in the land. Her name is Abishag. Now, her name wouldn't clue you off to her beauty, but names aren't everything. And that, what she offered him, it did the trick. She kept him alive, but we are told that there was no funny business that happened between them, just so we're aware. We are very blatantly told that. But here is our king. But now we meet David's oldest son, Adonijah. I've been practicing that one all week because I always want to say it a different way. I believe you should say it, Adonijah, and we quickly find out that he wants to be the king. Now we get a few clues right off the bat that this is probably a bad idea, what he is trying to do. First of all, we see that he is everything that David is not. It's like a complete reversal. He is a vigorous, would-be king. He has ambition. He has style, he has image, he has position, and he is the next in line by birth. But there are clues. You see, first of all, that we are told, if, if for the keen reader, we'll notice that in, in verse 5, that it wasn't God that exalted him to be king, but it says that he exalted himself to be the king. Now, that's a really bad sign. I will be king, he says. We're also told that he is very handsome, much like his brothers. You know, you'll remember Absalom and how that all ended. It wasn't great. We were told the same thing about him as well. Why say he was handsome? You know, that's a bit of a, a red flag. You know, it's fine to be good looking, but you don't want that to be your credentials, right? It's like, you know, we're looking to hire this guy and they're like, well, what's he like? Well, he's really good looking. You know, you know is that the right person for the job? Maybe not. Saul and Absalom, they were the same and this is what we were told about them. And so he takes his moment he sees it. The opportunity is right. The kingdom is precarious. The king's about to die. Here is my chance. He's probably lying in wait for his father to be in the position that he now is. And it's like, I'll wait till he's too old and feeble to be able to resist my takeover. Adonijah was very opportunistic. And so he gets his cronies together and we're told who they are. And he schemes up a plan. But if you notice as you read through, he doesn't include, as we heard read, the venerable prophet Nathan, who we know much about. He doesn't include David's mighty men that we talked about in our series previously. Who does he include in his inauguration? Well, he throws himself this huge party, a coronation party for himself to install himself as king, and it lists his buddies. And in verse 9, it says that he included all the royal officials of Judah. Now that's a bad sign. And we already get a clue that the kingdom is going to be divided in a negative way. It will worsen as the book goes on and will eventually completely separate until the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And this is where Adonijah comes from. And this is the guys that he brings along with him from the southern kingdom of Judah only in his inauguration. But as we're reading through there, we're wondering, well, why not Adonijah? I mean, here's a question you may have when you read this. I mean, what would be so bad? Why shouldn't this guy become the king? I mean, he is one of David's sons, right? We're actually even told that he's the eldest son. 
Primogeniture was kind of the way that things went back then. It was the, usually the eldest that would take over. That would be the next in line. So then what's so bad about this? Why shouldn't he be king? Well, the simple answer would be that God had a plan and he wasn't it. You know, obviously we see that there would be problems with this guy. He's a self-promoter. He's sneaky. He's divisive. He will be for Judah and he will not be for Israel. But there are many kings who will come that are also like that that aren't different from that. So why not him? Why not now? Well, to answer that question, let's take a look at what hadn't happened yet. You see, it's been approximately 470 years since they left Egypt. 470 years, that means, without a permanent what? They had no temple yet. They had no permanent place of worship. It hadn't been built. They were still worshiping at the portable tabernacle. The temple still had not been built. It's 470 years later, and why not? Well, if you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 22, you will see part of the answer to this question. Now remember, the Chronicles is a different telling of the events of 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 6 to 10, it gives us this clue. Allow me to read this to you. 1 Chronicles 22, 6 to 10. It says, Then he called for Solomon his son, this is David, and he charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood, and you have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who will be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to all of Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever." So there is the word that came to David about Solomon. A royal throne will be established forever through Solomon. God says he will be a man of rest, this Solomon. It will be this man of peace who will undertake the task of building the temple. You see, it's interesting that David didn't fit the criteria, and by the sounds of it, Adonijah, he didn't fit the criteria of a temple builder either. God selected Solomon for this task because David's reign was characterized by warfare and subduing their enemies. Now, that was an important task at just the right time. That was what God had tasked David to do, and David faithfully completed that task, but not this task. So you can also add Adonijah. He's looking like conflict and strife would accompany him as well. So he can't do this task that God has next for his people. David will lay the foundation, but he was a man of war, and he was a man who would conquer, and he would establish and firmly root the kingdom where they were, but that didn't qualify him to build the temple. Adonijah, he was going to be a warrior kind of a guy as well, who conflict and strife was going to follow him, but there would be this man of peace, this Solomon. His reign will be characterized by a time of peace and quiet, and it would expand. And you know the riches that would come to them, they would really begin to prosper under Solomon's reign. You see, even Solomon's name, which in Hebrew, it sounds a lot like shalom or peace. This was the temple builder. 
But for now, Adonijah is trying to take the crown and the kingdom, and he seems to be on the edge of disaster. And when we contemporize this, we can see there's many times in our history where it has looked the same, like the church is in the same position. It can even look like that in today's world, but there is a hand that steadies the church, that steadies the kingdom. There was then, and there is now. And not only that, but there are qualifications that we see here of what it means to be a good leader. We're seeing these qualifications being established. Adonijah didn't have them. And even in the New Testament, Paul lays out many of these qualifications that are important to live by. Not only those in leadership, but all of us as well. And if you look at the qualifications of elders or deacons in places like 1 Timothy 3, it's interesting to note that the emphasis is on godliness over giftedness. The emphasis is always on godliness, and that is rather telling, because this will exemplify the good kings, and it does for our own leadership as well. It's not all about gifting. The weight of it lays in godliness. God cares more for your heart than He cares for your ability. This is the essential component of what it would mean to be a good king, of what it means to be a good leader, of what it means to be a good Christ follower, a faithful follower. Well, we see that the tide turns. I don't think that Solomon being the next in line was unknown. It looks like David had made an oath about this to Bathsheba previously. And it's also very telling that Adonijah wouldn't have excluded him from the invitation for his own coronation. Why would he do that if he didn't know? Why would he exclude Solomon for coming? Well, Nathan and Bathsheba, they surely knew that if Adonijah reigned, that he would eliminate Solomon. Something had to be done. So good old Nathan, he goes to Bathsheba and he tells her what is underway and what his plan is for getting David to do something about it. Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, of course, is to go to David and to inform him of Adonijah's coup. And then Nathan will come in at the end and he will confirm her words to him, thus fulfilling the requirement from Mosaic law that said all these things should be established on the evidence of two or more witnesses. Nathan will come in at the end of Bathsheba's request to the king. And the two of them together will help to make this determination. And so they tell David of what Adonijah has done and how he had promised the throne to Solomon. If this happens, she lets David know that surely Adonijah would kill her and Solomon and Nathan if he is able to become king. So how crucial is Nathan's role here once again? He even had to inform Bathsheba of what was happening and what should ha happen going forward. And looking back on the whole affair, really everything in this situation rests on him, on Nathan. He not only intervened, but he also had a plan. He stood in the gap. He was the one who was able to get David out of his bed and into action once again. One faithful servant makes the difference and preserves the kingdom. But yet, I don't think the thrust of this passage is just to get us to be a Nathan. You know, though that's not a bad takeaway, we can look at him and admire what he has done here. Your service in the kingdom should never be taken for granted and the impact that it can have. What all of us are able to do, our faithfulness, whether it's major or minor, is always significant. It can do tremendous things within God's kingdom. And this is what we see happening. Well, what is the king's response going to be to this? Well, what a change comes over David in verse 28. And if you look in your Bibles to see uh, what is happening, or if you read through this previously, you will see what da how David responds. 
You know, it's interesting that when Bathsheba first came to David, all he could do essentially was just muster, what do you want when he comes to her? It was essentially, he was just saying, what do you want? It was two syllables in Hebrew is all he has spoken. That's all he has said this entire time. But now he gives an emphatic response to Nathan and Bathsheba that sets the course. He affirms and reaffirms his oath to Bathsheba and he gives detailed orders for anointing and installing Solomon as the king. He says, he will reign in my place. I have ordered him to be the leader over Israel and over Judah. David is establishing Solomon. He has really been roused to do this. And this, this I think, brings into a few things that are worth considering for us in this section. It is what is it that stirs us? You know, David going from basically looking like he was dead to having this rousing response as to what will happen next with the kingdom. I think a couple of things. Number one, it was the fate of the kingdom that spurred him into action, that really stirred his heart. He was laying there seamlessly near death and suddenly gives this emboldened speech that changed the trajectory of the kingdom towards God's sovereign plan. What stirs us as kingdom servants? What is it that gets you up into action for the kingdom? What are you passionate about? Because it is the things that most deeply stir your heart that cause you to do things that you otherwise would not have done. The things that stir your heart. And that can be for the good or for the bad. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen someone react in a way that seemed excessive for the situation. Like maybe you've had a run-in with someone and they responded in a way that was like, whoa, like why the strong reaction? You know, what's going on here? I wasn't expecting this. Or maybe it was you. You know, maybe you responded in a disproportionate kind of way to a situation that left you wondering, where did this come from? Why am I responding like this? Something hit a nerve that was a lot deeper than what the situation had dictated. It could be pride. It could be a former hurt that hasn't been dealt with, that you haven't fully processed. It could be a challenge to the power that you believe is due to you. It could be so many different things. But when we respond in a disproportionate way, we must stop and think, why? Why am I responding like this? Usually it's getting at an unmanaged idol in your heart. So watch out for that. The problem is usually that everyone else sees the way you've reacted or acted as being over the top, but sometimes we don't see it ourselves. We need to watch out for that. Now that's on the negative side. You know, what about the positive side? What stirs you for the kingdom that you do radical and great things for God's kingdom? What stirs you? Does God and the things of God stir you into bold movements? Things that are costly, things that are time consuming, things that push you out of your comfort zone. What are those things that motivate you? This is very different than working to earn your place in God's kingdom. It's not legalism. This is a stirring of your heart that compels you to service. That's what happened to David here. He was stirred and compelled into doing something. Is it happening for you? Do you experience that stirring for the things of God and His kingdom? The second thing that we notice here is that this whole section describes nothing but human activity. You know, if you read through this, there's very little, if any, reference to any divine intervention that is happening Yet the entire course of God's kingdom is being established and moved forward. That's really encouraging, kind of, isn't it? When you, when you really think about that. You see, God didn't just like strike down Adonijah in this miraculous kind of way. 
There's no lightning bolt from heaven giving orders of what to do next. It was just at the right time, in the right situation, faithful men and women had inspired minds with thoughts that moved them into action. Words that turned events into the right direction. Let that sink in and encourage you. Well, the party for Adonijah is over. He and his cronies, they're nearing the tail end of their party. It was designed to make them king, and they hear a racket going on. As they're celebrating, they're coming to the end of their celebration. Must have been a long party because all of this happened while they were still partying, all the stuff we've talked about. They were just outside the city, and within the city, this massive coronation for Solomon was now taking place. David was installing him as king. And then Jonathan, one of David's faithful men and the son of the priest who was with Adonijah, he comes in with news to Adonijah's party. It must be good news, Adonijah thinks. Well, I mean, really it is, but it's not good for his plan to become king. Jonathan knows all the details of Solomon's inauguration that's going on at the same time. He must have been right there with him. And as he tells this to Adonijah and his guests, imagine what all of the guests were thinking. They're at Adonijah's party and they're thinking, we backed the wrong horse. What are we doing here? We got to get out of here or it'll be us too that will be killed. Imagine their fear. They slink away from the table and it says they go all back to their own ways. You know, just kind of imagine this scene. Slowly backing out the door, trying not to be seen. Adonijah fears Solomon as well as he runs away and he tries to find refuge at the altar, which was a distance away. He won't kill me here, he thinks, at the altar. And Solomon doesn't. Nor does he have any intentions to. But there are going to be conditions to him being allowed to live. Solomon's response to him is that as long as he becomes a worthy man, he can stay alive. But if he becomes wicked, he will pay the price and he will die. Now this sounds reasonable enough for Adonijah, and so he appears before Solomon and he pays homage to him. And that is the end of the story so far. What parallels do we see here? We see thus far, Adonijah has done the right thing. So long as he continues in submission to the king, he will be safe. But as we know, there can be such a thing as an outward submission that stands a mile apart from what a glad internal submission really looks like. We started by acknowledging that all of these kings point towards the true ultimate king who would come. And when Pilate wrote the inscription on the cross that we talked about, Hail, the King of the Jews, it was ironically appropriate, because we all must hail the true king. And it can't be a mere outward assent. It can't just be words that we say, but it must be something that is truly embraced when we come before the king, Jesus. Because this king, Jesus, does not require our lip service. He is a king in the true sense of the word, not like the kings and the queens that we see now. He is a king that demands our full allegiance, our body, our mind, and our heart. Will Adonijah do this for King Solomon? Well, we don't know yet in our story, but we must do this before our king. And it is a pleasure for us because he is a good king. You see, Jesus is not a king who will take advantage of you. He will not use you for your influence and demand sacrifice for his own selfish reasons. No, he is a king who will give you what is only good for you, 
what will eternally benefit your soul are the only things that this king will give us. He's a king that loves us beyond measure and offers us everlasting hope in life. We are told that one day every knee will bow to this true king. The question is, will you do it willingly now or will you do it when it's too late to be saved? For every knee will bow. For we all will do it eventually. He calls you to come to him, to give him your life, to give him your heart, and he will heal you and he will set you free. He is a good king, and his kingdom is a good kingdom. The first and greatest commandment that we have been given as his creation is to love him with all of our heart, and all of our soul, and all of our mind, and all of our strength. He is the one who rules. Have you given him rule over your life? Have you humbly submitted to him? You see, Solomon's promise of mercy, it was conditional. It wasn't unconditional towards Adonijah. He had to continue on in serving and in his loyalty. And if he didn't, it would mean that he never was really true and he would face the dire consequences of what he had done. Are you holding on to areas of your life that you don't want God to rule over? Or are you being flat out disobedient to his rule over areas of your life? See today the importance of this. He is waiting for you. He has offered you mercy and grace and forgiveness. Will you surrender yourself fully to this king today? Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, they give us this beautiful picture of him, where it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember, our big idea for today is God maintains His kingdom even in the most precarious of times. Even when God does not seem to be working in miraculous ways through the ordinary decisions and actions of His faithful followers, His kingdom is secure, and so too can you be. Let's pray. Father God, we, thank, we are so thankful for the way in which we see how you have established your kingdom. And we are told, and even through uh, the prophetic words that are given to Solomon, that it is a kingdom that will continue to maintain until the day of your arrival, Will it will continue on into all eternity. It is not a kingdom that will ever come to an end. And so we thank you for the hope and the promise that there is in you as our king, and in your kingdom. And so, Father, may we be faithful followers of you to truly submit ourselves, to humble ourselves before you, and to accept your rule and your lordship in our lives. And that by doing so, just the ordinary acts that we would do for your kingdom can have eternal significance. So we thank you that we can see this even in this passage this morning. And we see the faithfulness of, of many and how you use that faithfulness, Lord, to accomplish your perfect, perfect plan. So use us in this way, we pray, and may we come to you humbly and bow our knee to you as our good King. In Christ's name, amen. Well, thanks for listening in to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. If you would like more information about what we do and why we do it, please check out our website at nestbaptist.com 
where you will find links to all of our ministries, weekly updates, contact information for our staff, and a button to donate. Your donations go to making resources like this possible and helps us in many other ways in reaching our surrounding community with the good news of Jesus Christ. So thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.